Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us this time in London. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So we're obviously now at the start of a new year. The data point, accordingly, is 2024. Happy New Year to everyone. We thought we could use this opportunity to offer a preview of the year ahead. And it struck us that this is, above all, a year of big elections around the world. And that means the GOP primary season is about to begin. Kickoff is in less than two weeks with the Iowa caucuses. And then just a few days later, the ever- is gearing Hampshire up for a general election in spring. Voters will cast their ballots in April and May. Now, Prime Minister Narendra- Taiwan will hold presidential elections on January 13th. And China is warning that they will use military force to annex the island if its people vote for a candidate that supports- Pretty much. Every continent has a big election of some kind, and obviously we can't cover them all, but we thought we would try to take a look at some of the big ones and offer some economic or economic-adjacent analysis of those elections coming up this year. So first one, a big one, maybe the big one, the U.S. election. Obviously, uh, Joe Biden is running for re-election. It seems like the Republicans are about to nominate Donald Trump, the former president. I wanted to ask whether this election is something more than an election. I mean, is this, for the United States, a de facto constitutional juncture that we are at? I mean, would a victory by Trump, who has promised to do everything from execute members of the military to, you know, indirectly promise not to leave office ever again, I mean, would this be a sign that the inherited constitutional system in a way has just been exhausted? I mean, is this... Historically speaking, how change happens, you just have kind of a long decay of some kind, then followed by a sudden epochal change, I mean, of the kind that Trump in this year could potentially represent? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we can escape these kind of thoughts. I mean, it's, um, it is an extraordinarily dramatic and an extraordinarily important election. I mean, it's, it's bringing, I'm, I'm, I'm already having flashbacks of 2020, which was uh, extraordinarily exhausting as, a, as an experience being in the United States through that roller coaster of a year. I mean, I think you could push back and say, you know, do, do we really need a Trump victory to prove this point that the American Constitution at some point has, is no longer really fit for purpose in its current form? You know, how can a constitution that gives, you know, an equal number of senators to a tiny states like West Virginia or Nebraska or something as California and New York or Texas, how, how on earth can this be a viable political structure going forward? It is, I checked again, I can't ever quite believe this, but it is basically the oldest functioning constitution in the world. 
ratified in 1789. It beats the Norwegian constitution, which took effect in 1814, and Belgium's implemented in 1831. So what are the odds that it could still be working at this point, right? I mean, the vast, every other country in the world has had to go through some really dramatic revision to go on functioning. And there's some sort of promise in the American founding moment in an America's exceptionalist, exceptionalist ideology that this 18th century edifice will go on working as it clearly no longer does in a 21st century setting. And, and I, but you, so you can kind of back away from the sheer terror of what actually faces us, which I completely agree is in every single dimension the prospect of a potential state crisis, right? I mean, Trump and his folk are essentially at war with two of the most important, you could say three pillars of the American state to just narrow it down, the judiciary, the military high command and the FBI, um, which you would think of as like pretty profoundly important institutions of the most that conservative Americans would be devoutly loyal to. And it's actually not true that that's any longer the case. There's quite a powerful division of opinion about all three. And that's before we get into dimensions of, you know, what you might think of a progressive or dynamic or modern forward-looking policy like climate, where America will revert to its essentially kind of Neanderthal position on climate policy. And it's no, it's a truly it's a truly staggering prospect, and that this is the case in the in what is still the most powerful state in the world and still the most important center of economic governance in the world is absolutely dramatic. And after all, this isn't just a matter of politics. This is a reflection of the fact the opinion polls are the way they are. The reason we're asking these questions is that alarming, astonishingly large percentages of Americans do not consider it an embarrassment to express openly express their support for for this man and the and the politicians that cluster him around him, and in fact are quite openly willing to tell substantial minorities now. Substantial minorities are willing to tell pollsters that they do not even uphold the rule of law. And that actually they regard it as essential that a strong man president be willing to break the law if necessary. So it's, it's no, it's anywhere else in the world. And you would be saying that this is a, you know, a, a brewing state crisis of the most severe and, and serious type. I mean, and I guess just whether or not this comes to pass, I mean, we don't know if Trump is going to win or not, but I, I guess I just want to ask, historically speaking, is when when an order is no longer fit for purpose, which then it seems inevitable of any given order at some point. I mean, does it tend to result in collapse? I mean, like is is collapse like a, a normal in historical perspective, or are there like the shift between orders happen in more like in gradual or reformist ways? I mean, what what is you know with your historian hat on? How should we like think about? the necessary change like that. I mean, I'm speaking to you from London, after all. So, um, you know, draw your own conclusions from that. No, I don't think it necessarily follows that you have collapse, but decline, stagnation, corruption, um, increasing kind of idiocy, incoherence, disillusionment, impossibility of, like, constructive engagement. I mean, how does one... You know, you speak to well-meaning Brits, like what does decent policy look like in a setting like that, like this, like the one that I'm in here? I think all of those sorts of situations confront America. And what's really striking is the generational thing. I think the best, the most hopeful dimension of this may be that young Americans are actually in many ways, you know, calling for, not Trump, I don't think, um, if you look at the balance of 
voting, they don't overwhelmingly support Trump, but they are calling for something beyond the baby boomer, you know, orthodoxies that, that Biden and his team represent, quite clearly expressing a quite profound dissatisfaction with America's domestic order and a very profound disinterest in paying the price for upholding America's imperial, you know, global hegemonic role. And uh, presumably the most promising prospect is that at some point in the future a politics emerges which responds to that, which I think Trump is in some way, but does so in a much more much more constructive way than Trump is. And and I would accuse the Biden administration and it's his team for all the constructiveness of many areas of their policy of having cast all of it really in an ultra traditional version of American global leadership and sort of this narcissistic preoccupation with America's preeminence and importance and so on. And, um, you know, that has to that has to go, I think, before you can move into a more constructive space. So to shift uh, from the U.S. election, which obviously is in November, to a much more uh, near-term election, namely that in Taiwan, that in fact is the first big election of the year uh, happening very soon in the first uh, half of January. Obviously, there are vast strategic implications at play here for relations with China and Taiwan, and then also by extension with the United States. There's been talk of war with China over Taiwan in recent years that hasn't entirely gone away. And I'm curious whether that's reflected in the campaign happening in Taiwan. Or alternatively, does the election in Taiwan reveal that kind of more prosaic concerns, economic pocketbook concerns, will always have priority over these big strategic issues in in a domestic election? I mean, it's a truly fascinating case because in the Taiwanese case, one of the one of the fundamental questions at stake is how far the political actors celebrate or take for granted or challenge the existence of Taiwan as an independent polity. Right? Because the governing party's position, the Democratic Progressive Party's position, is that, and they have huge opinion poll backing for this, is that Taiwan's independence is no longer something that needs to be triumphed over or loudly proclaimed. It's just a fact. And so you need to move on from there to governing in various ways and resisting, of course, China's aggression against Taiwan in the name of the independence, which is itself simply a fact. And this is a it's a very delicate balancing act, this, of course, because you know you, it's only from a strictly parochial Taiwanese position that that statement makes any sense. But for, for them, their politics, it's really quite crucial. So they've, uh, whereas their challengers, the Kuomintang, of course, insists that Taiwan is organically part of a much broader Chinese culture and a Chinese polity and challenge the, the DPP for, in a sense, wanting to bury the national issue, which the, the Kuomintang accuses them of doing as an act of aggression against mainland China, right? So the, the politics of the moment in Taiwan mean that whether or not you play the national card or the non-national card is itself part of a meta game in which if you are trying to uphold the de facto independence of Taiwan, you in a sense don't want to talk about it very much and want to focus on domestic national things. But focusing on domestic national issues is itself really the expression of a politics of independence 
Whereas the Kuomintang finds itself accused, apparently by many younger voters, of beating the old, old, old Cold War drums of the question of relation with China and accusing using the war threat card as a cynical tool to really play against their Democratic Progressive Party opponents. Meanwhile, the challenger party, which is the, uh, a new party, the so-called Taiwanese or Taiwan's People's Party, is trying to sidestep the whole issue and focus on progressive issues of modern governance. And so it's a truly fascinating election in which I don't think you could squarely say in a simple sense that economic and social issues at home displace foreign policy, but rather more the election is about the extent to which your politics means that you say, well, shoulder shruggingly, you know what, we're actually dependent, independent, so therefore we ought to do domestic, economic and social policy, or the extent to which you want to, as the Kuomintang wants to, continuously press this issue of their opponent's willingness to insist on independence, which undoubtedly raises pressure with China. So it's a, it's not your average election where we can just simply ask is foreign policy on people's minds? Because in the vast majority of elections, we know from survey after survey after survey, it just never and very rarely is. It, you know, people vote pocketbook issues. In Taiwan, it's more if you are voting pocketbook issues, you're de facto declaring a position on foreign policy. So it's a, and everyone knows it. <laughs> so, so it's a, it's a truly kind of mind-bendingly complex political political configuration. To shift to now a slightly later election, but a much, much bigger election, namely that in India, uh, India will be having general elections in April and May of this year. It's the world's largest democracy, as it is often referred to as. It seems pretty clear already right now that Prime Minister Narendra Modi will remain Prime Minister. The polls uh, seem to indicate that already. And we've talked about Modi a fair amount on this podcast. And we've talked about how he has affected the Indian economy, how he's uh, shifted it in some ways. But I'm curious right now whether we could say he's also shifted the country's geopolitical positioning. And how would that be set to continue under a new Modi administration? I think the... The move to make with regard to Modi's India right now is to always ask yourself, is it plausible that this man and his mighty, mighty, mighty political party that he's built and the machine that's been built around him, is it really plausible that a political force like that, as extraordinary as it is, and when they undoubtedly win these next elections, it will not just be the biggest election in history, but it will be the single most potent democratic political force we've ever seen operating. It's an extraordinary, the BJP is an extraordinary machine. But is it extraordinary enough to shift the basics of either economic change or geopolitics? And we've discussed the economics on the program. There's no doubt that they give India's economic development a particular hue that they you know, have arrived at the right moment to claim credit for nation building, that there is an element of truth around that. But if we move to the geopolitical scene, you know, the geo bit of geopolitics is is geography. And that doesn't change much. That's part of the shtick, right? That geopolitics has a logic that's independent of transient forces. And if you look at India, you can kind of see the force of that kind of argument, right? It's this 
this huge subcontinental mass divided from Eurasia by the massive Himalayan mountain chain. And on the other side of that mountain chain is China. And on the other end of that mountain chain, further along Central Asia, barring in between, is Russia. And those forces, in a sense, govern Indian geopolitics with a kind of massive logic that isn't easy to escape and is certainly not the kind of thing that a figure like Modi as powerful as he is, can fundamentally reshape, nor has he shown any real ambition to do that. So I think what we see in Modi's geopolitics is a government, a figure making the most of India's new prominence, India making the most of the tensions between China and the US and the tensions between the West and Russia, both of which position India in a strategic way. But the underlying logic here is old. It's really quite old. And once upon a time, they used to call themselves non-aligned. That was in the period of the Cold War. India was one of the kind of bastions of the non-aligned movement, one of the major players. And now India talks about multi-alignment, which is not so much non-alignment as aligning yourself with whoever it suits New Delhi to be aligned with at any given moment. And India is now important enough to be able to pull that off. It's just too important to want to embarrass India, regardless of whether it's entertaining strong economic and military connections with Russia, or on the other hand, allying itself with the West and the Quad and and the various configurations of power that America is trying to stitch together in the Indo-Pacific. India is a too pivotal a player. And even in the expanse of India's ambition in the Indo-Pacific realm, and people talk about India as a new player in the broader Middle East, there's talk now about an Indian-American partnership in infrastructure to rival One Belt, One Road. If you go back a little bit further in history, again, you see simply as a result of the facts of geography and the trade winds literally in the Indian Ocean, that that connection between India and the Middle East and East Africa is centuries old, if not even, you could say, a millennium old. So, I think here the important point is not to dismiss the significance of Modi's regime and its remarkable political achievement in stabilizing itself and building its majoritarian base and transforming by degrees the Indian state, but to understand that as bound on the one hand by the conditions of global economic development and India's rather limited domestic capacities, still quite limited domestic capacities, and on the other hand by these, one has to say facts, if you like, of geography. They're not unalterable. They're changed by technology. They're changed by culture. They're changed by people's movements all the time, but they are slow moving and they aren't the sort of things that can easily simply be shifted or overlooked by by policymakers at any given moment. I was going to ask whether India's support for Israel in, in, in the current war marks any kind of important shift, even just ideologically, or, or, or is that really not significant? I mean, it's a fascinating dimension of Indian power I'm tempted to say, you know, putting my sort of historian's hat on that, you know, it goes back to the presence of Indian imperial forces in the Middle East and Palestine and Egypt in World War II and World War One. right? The, the, the so-called British army in the Middle East, the army that beat the Africa Corps ultimately in, in Al-Alamein in 1942 or that ultimately conquered the Ottoman Empire was an Anglo-Indian um, army. In fact, in the World War One, it was the government of India that ran the Middle Eastern campaign. So the presence of India as a powerful force in this region is not in and of itself a his, you know a bit, but it's a historical innovation that, you know by any reasonable standards in recent decades of course but there is a logic there that's quite deep India almost ended up with East African mandates 
the government of India almost ended up with East Andean man- and mandates after World War One. Of course, it would have been a British colonial government of India, but the mandates would have been held in India's name as the obvious hegemon of the Indian Ocean. So there's a tension there, and it's not aligned status. Then I guess there's a wrinkle in that in in, in all this time. I guess there. Well, I a- think this multi-alignment is a good new phrase that the that the Modi administration has coined. That does rather nicely capture the sort of game they're playing. I think. Uh, aligned in many different ways. And and one of the central issues has always been, and it was 100 years ago, is India's relation with the Muslim world. And you know, and one of the fundamental drivers in the 100 years ago was India's position in relation to the future of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, now, no doubt, you know, India's alignment with Israel also has, has a religious political tinge. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now and be back to talk about the elections coming up in Europe. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Well, now to shift continents, I wanted to ask about Europe, which also has various elections of its own this coming year. You know, Britain is among them, but I guess we can exclude that, or rather Britain has excluded itself uh, in in various ways from Europe. But there are other elections, including in Austria, Portugal, and moreover, in the European Union as a whole. In June, there will be uh, elections for the European Parliament. And across these various elections, it does seem like Populists, right-wing populists, are on the rise in various of those countries, but they're also expected to do especially well in these EU parliamentary elections. There's already talk of how that could shift politics in the EU as a whole, and I wanted to ask, what would it mean if uh, right-wing populists become a bigger force in the European Union? Yeah, what would it mean to see the EU itself become a right-wing project? Is that a coherent kind of vision to have for Europe? I'm going to be kind of the irritating historian again and start the year by asking, you know, at what point did Europe become something else than a right-wing project? I mean, are you calling Jacques Delors? I mean, I, I don't am know. Calling Jacques Delors kind of like, yes, I'm thinking know, of Jacques Delors. I'm thinking of who who just died. Who just obviously, died. he's yeah. also um, yeah, and, and, uh, and the famous EU commissioner of the of the 80s and 90s, and a Christian socialist. And that's, I think, the important thing, which is that. I think the answer to the question, when did the EU stop being a right-wing project, is sometime in the 70s and 80s, it began to acquire a social liberal tinge, which then became more and more dominant in its rather narcissistic self-imagining by the 90s and by the early 2000s when France and Germany were leading the opposition to 
the Anglo-American war on Iraq. And, you know, you had a Harbour Mars and Derrida lining up European intellectuals to proclaim Europe a different kind of West. It kind of reached its absolute climax. And you could argue it's been falling apart ever since that vision of a social Europe, a democratic Europe, starting with the failure of the constitutional project, beginning with the French referendum in 2005, um, the ever more aggressive policing of Europe's boundaries, and so on and so forth, right? The the fiscal conservative crackdown of the European, of the Eurozone, which was figureheaded by Wolfgang Schäuble, who died within 24 hours of Jacques Delors in recent weeks. And so what we would be seeing is a, you could argue, a return to Europe, to its origins, because I mean, the European integration project was nothing if not a Christian democratic, you could say small c conservative, but one shouldn't underestimate just how conservative on every social and cultural value and in their anti-communism, the founders of the EU were. It's not without reason that the left wing in European politics was originally very sceptical of the European integration project, most vividly outside the EU project, like in Britain, where the Labour Party you know, struggled with the EU vision all the way down to the gener- generation that Jeremy Corbyn belonged to. But also more broadly um, in European politics, it was quite rightly understood as a, an annex to a, a, a concomitant of the Cold War front formation, and unabashedly so, unapologetically so. And an inheritor of Western Christendom ideas and even some very, very dark currents of interwar thinking about Western integration, European integration against the dark threat of Bolshevism to the East and the Slav and so on and so forth. Right. So this has always been part of Europe's politics. And I think it's important not to somehow do some hand-wringing thing about Europe losing its soul. No, I think what's happening here is that Europe is shifting its character again, as it does, because it's actually kind of a live polity at this point. And what will emerge next year, I think, is a quite an open question, because we have, after all, had a very important election in Poland, which if it had gone the other way, I would be squarely on board with this vision of Europe drifting far to the right, in light of what happened both in Spain and in Poland, where center leftist progressive forces didn't win huge victories, but they staved off, in the Polish case, a re-election of a nationalist government, which almost certainly would have produced a kind of regime change, and in Spain would have meant the end of a socialist-led government, a social democratic-led government. Now, European politics is super complex, and I think we are indeed going through a shift in complexion, and it might mean that people like Maloney have more influence. But again, Maloney has turned out, that's the Italian prime minister who was widely feared and touted as a post-fascist exponent, which in, in genealogically she is, that's where she comes from. But when she's acted in power, what she's tended to do is to distort and warp. David Boder wrote a great piece about this in, in the New York Times. It's distorted and warped, and if you like, exposed and brought to the surface and given more space to the nationalist, xenophobic, racist currents, which are always part of the European project, but hasn't blown the whole thing up and hasn't blown the wheels off the bus and hasn't somehow pivoted Italy toward Putin or one of the other kind of wilder fantasies that were associated with the right in Italy for a while. So I think that's the kind of reality that we may very well be seeing. And cynics would say, well, this is the reality of European politics always. I think that's too, you know, it's grossly simplistic. But it wouldn't constitute, I don't think, a fundamental rupture. Or, or if it did, it would be with a relatively recent established norm that is more often honoured in the breach 
we have to be realistic about you you can't as i do support the european project i think sensibly from an unrealistic point of view about its politics <laughs> you know you have to support it from a realistic assessment of what its politics and its history are and acknowledging this is important yeah no 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 i and i i agree but i do think the reason maybe people are, are surprised by that is that the this reminder that you can have a right wing politics that isn't inherently or insistently nationalist i mean there's oh, a kind of yes. pan, there's yes. a kind of pan european genuinely right wing pan european ideological project that is yeah n- not doesn't need to be rooted in nationalism per se and it's a crucial point because in understanding the nature of the right in the us and europe right now the big difference is islamophobia and its central role in europe and it's relatively marginal i'm not saying it's absent in the us because it resurges again and again in the us too but it is so much more prominent in europe so there is a big other unifying the european right and the american right feeds off all sorts of other others right there's just just anti-black racism is a much much more important driver of american right-wing politics there's a sort of almost civil war logic in the us of hating american liberals with a visceral intensity that i don't actually see in much of the european right wing they their aggression is sure also against progressives and liberals but it's mainly against muslim migrants so there are other organizing logics on the European right and the center, one has to say, as has been exposed by the way in which European politicians have aligned themselves over the massacre going on in Gaza. So finally, I wanted to ask about an election that seems like it won't be happening, uh, and namely the election that was supposed to happen in Ukraine. Ukraine was slated for a presidential election this year, but that has been delayed because of the ongoing war with Russia. I guess I wanted to ask, how is the continuing war in Ukraine affecting the political and economic trajectory of that country? Yeah, I mean, how is that itself reflected in the the decision to delay the election? I mean, I think the fundamental point here is that Ukraine is under huge stress. It, It isn't when you look at it in the cold light of day operating a total war economy in the classic World War II sense, but it's under huge stress. Its civil administration is at you know at the limit of its capacity. Eight million Ukrainians are displaced and living as refugees outside Ukraine. Its economy is recovering from a really profound shock. Millions of people are serving in the military on the front line. Like how on earth could it conduct elections? And and what would be the basis on which you could conduct the elections? How could anyone stand against Zelensky? How would you even do that? Right. This is a nation which really is facing an existential threat. It's very difficult within the limits of conventional understandings of electoral politics to see how you can reasonably contest a government under that kind of pressure. And I was thinking historically, have there been instances? And it's really quite difficult. I know in the Ameri- in America there have been. So during World War II in '44 there was an election, but but it's that's America, right? I mean, America really wasn't under any kind of existential threat in 1944. Ukraine's position is far far more serious. And and so it's very unsurprising that they've that put this off. In fact, 80% of Ukrainians, at least according to one set of polls I've seen cited, support deferring the election until, and this is the grim thing, until after the war is over. And of course, the worry is the war, when will the war be over? We don't know. The other, though, salient thing about Ukraine's position is it's desperately, desperately dependent on foreign aid. And if you ask where the calls for Ukraine to go to elections are coming from, I mean, it's almost too crazy to be true. But it it does appear to be either ignorant or mischievous 
Republican voices in the United States who are in various ways looking for reasons to vote against aid to Ukraine and have seized on this issue of the suspension of the elections as one more reason. And Lindsey Graham apparently has actually been to Kiev and lectured the Ukrainians on the need to hold the election. Lindsey Graham, like it's anyway, just beggars belief. And so that I think gives you an idea of, you know, what what the suspension of the election and the debate about its possible holding in 24 tell you about Ukraine's economy is they are having to countenance this kind of external pressure because they they are facing a struggle next year or, uh, to to sustain the economic and financial support without which they can't function as a war economy. And that's maybe what it comes down to. Yeah, well, that makes you wonder how the country's politics could continue to get distorted if the longer the war goes on. I mean, like, how long can one delay elections and still call it a democracy, you know? No, it's brutal. I mean, but, you know, I mean, democracies have faced this question before, say, during World War I. The French suspended elections, the British suspended elections, and you end up holding an election immediately after the end of the war. They were the so-called khaki elections that were held in Britain. I I checked them, you know, within weeks of the armistice on the 11th of November, the, the election was held in, I think, the first week of December or something like that. But it's just a sort of fundamental logic of, you know, to put it another way, to hold an election, a democratic election under the circumstances Ukraine in would be the absolutely supreme test of democratic coherence. Because you would really have different parties in an election contesting necessarily the conduct of the war so far. And they would have to accord to each other at least the basic, you know, they'd have to suspend the suspicion that they were acting unpatriotically and challenging the current government. I mean, it's a you know, considering the extraordinary constraints placed on freedom of speech in societies not even involved in the war going on in Palestine right now, let alone the restrictions that were placed on the freedom of speech effectively, for instance, during the early phases of the global war on terror and what was sayable and what was not sayable, to ask of Ukraine under these circumstances to conduct a free and fair election I I just think it's like profoundly unrealistic. It it actually doesn't really grasp what the stakes in democratic politics are if you think that you can easily conduct them under circumstances like this. I should say Russia is also slated to have an election next year, a presidential election, but I'm not sure whether... Exactly. (laughs) That gives you a good measure of how seriously the two countries take their democracy. Precisely. Exactly. Whether we want to call that an election and what does that reveal about the relationship between uh, between war-making and and democracy, I think, uh, only uh, underscores your point. You could say, like, you know, you're either either not fighting an existential war or you're not a democracy if you conduct a... (laughs) You're not actually a democracy if you actually conduct an election. I mean, Somebody may put us wrong, may you know, give us an example of a mm. a powerful counterexample of a genuinely contested dem- election. I don't know the Peloponnesian Wars. I don't know, like you know, what was ancient yeah, Athens? Did that end well. I don't, I don't know. I just didn't, that, that, exactly. My sense was that that didn't necessarily end. Yeah, well. mm. Mm. yeah. I had to take off my uh, take Thucydides off my shelf and, and and flip through that. But yeah, maybe we should have to end this conversation here for now. And yeah, we will probably check back in on some of these elections in the the months ahead. So yeah, looking forward to that. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura rossbrow Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. 
Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.